Greg Livingston learned his medicine in China, and about nine years ago, he returned here to the States. He teaches at the Oregon College of Chinese Medicine in Portland, Oregon, and he's schooled in various aspects of the medicine, and he's turned me on to some interesting books from some docs that I've never heard of. Yeah, just when I need more books. You know, different people sort of develop an eye for different aspects of the practice, or they've got a knack for a particular illness or condition. For Greg, that would be blood stasis, which is something we often talk about. But Dr. Livingston here, he's like a blood stasis whisperer. I'm looking forward to this conversation about a topic that we all deal with every day in our clinical practices. Greg, welcome to Geological. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. You know, it's so geeky getting together and talking about something like blood stasis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know, that's what we do. We geek out, you know, TCM geeks. TCM so geeks. That's our thing. So blood stasis, good Lord. What were your influences? Were there teachers? Were there books? Was there something in clinic? What got you going down the rabbit hole of blood stasis? It's certainly not the only thing that I concern myself with in Chinese medicine, but over time, I started to see that a lot of patients have blood stagnation. And some teacher of mine said that health in Chinese medicine can be defined as high-quality blood, nutritious blood, highly oxygenated blood, circulating completely unimpeded throughout the body. That's the definition of health, not physical fitness. Health is unimpeded blood flow. You have really high-quality blood, highly oxygenated circulating unimpeded and then all the tissues will function well and that's not a new idea certainly you know in chinese medicine the idea like right if there's obstruction there's pain right then you unblock it then the pain goes away so chinese medicine is all about circulation of qi and blood i mean not all about that but yeah it's so fundamental i often forget about it yeah but it's just one of those basic things that you need to be concerned about and people end up with impaired blood circulation for a variety of reasons, right? We can go back to, you know, the sanyin, the three categories of disease-causing factors, right? Niin, wayin, bunebawat, the internal, external, and miscellaneous causes of disease. Neither internal or external, yeah. Right, neither internal nor external. So any of those things can ultimately cause blood stagnation, right? External pathogen invades and impair circulation of qi and blood and internal factors, the emotions impair circulation of qi and blood and the miscellaneous things, trauma, uh, animal bites, those things, surgeries, they, those things end up impairing circulation of qi and blood. So especially with chronic patients and older people, you see less with little kids, but even you can, but certainly people once they're middle age or or elderly, they usually have a lot of blood stagnation. And so it's. I found that it's one of those things that if you know how to identify it and you know how to treat it, then the results are, are pretty miraculous. And it, I'm known for this at OCOM, where I teach, as being a little bit obsessed with blood stagnation, actually. All the students that follow me in the clinic, they, they know that, that it's a thing of mine. I don't think really that it's me being obsessed with it. It's just everywhere, right? I think it's its everywhere. And I think it looks like I'm obsessed with it because a lot of people don't know how to see it. And 
they don't know how to diagnose it. They don't know how to treat it. So what does blood stagnation look like? And more to the point, maybe, what is it that your average practitioner like me might be overlooking? Sometimes in clinic, there's these weird signs and symptoms and you go, I don't know what that is. And you kind of just put it off to the side, hoping it will later fall into the pattern, but it never does. Yeah. I mean, it could be something like that, but a lot of times there's stuff that's just staring you right in the face, but there are things that a lot of practitioners, I would say largely in the West, I didn't meet too many doctors in China that had trouble diagnosing that, but in the West, you know, I think generally people's diagnostic skill is not quite as good as in China. So there's exceptions, obviously, but so what are we looking at then? What would what would help us to make sure we're not missing the obvious? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is the complexion. You can see it when people walk in the room. If if it's significant, they have an ashen complexion. There's no sheen. You have to understand that the the blood vessels that feed the skin are tiny little capillaries. And so it's easy to occlude those vessels. If the blood circulation is sluggish systemically, then almost sure the blood circulation to the skin will be impaired. So the skin is dry, lacking sheen, becomes ashen-colored. Also in Chinese we call it zhuo. is that scaly-looking skin. It's dry and looks kind of scaly, especially if you, if you take your fingers and you you sort of squeeze this, pinch the skin together a little bit. It'll look a little bit rough and scaly. And then the other thing, which a lot of people don't realize, for some reason it's not well known, or at least in my experience here in the, in the West, is pigment spots. Pigment spots is a huge sign of blood stagnation. I mean, like these? Like those. <laughs> exactly. Those are blood stagnation. Yeah. So for you listeners, we actually have a, a, a video as we're talking to each other, but I'm showing the back of my left hand. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's clear sign of blood stagnation. Some people have freckles. That's not blood stagnation. But if they're what we call age spots, that's blood stagnation. Why do people get that as they age? Because as people age, they tend to develop more and more blood stagnation. Do you know this Dr. Yan Dexin? He's a very famous Shanghai Lao Zongyi. Yeah, I'm not familiar with him. He's kind of the, the number one big guy in Shanghai. What's his name again? Yan Dexin. Y-A-N-D-E-X-I-N. Yan Dexin. Okay, we'll put, we'll put his name on the show notes. Yeah, he's very famous for his discussions of blood stagnation. He's also kind of obsessed, if we can say that, with blood stagnation. So I read a lot of his stuff, actually. He definitely had a, a bit of an influence on me. So Yendashin says that one of the main causes of aging, aside from decline of essence, is blood stagnation. So, yeah, as people age, they incur more blood stagnation and they get those age spots. So you can see those anywhere on the body. It's very easy to see them on the hand. And since we're t- checking people's pulses, hopefully then you know you can have a look at people's hand and arm you'll see pigment spots there purple lips is another thing that you'll see of course purple tongue and then one thing that i particularly like to inspect is the lower leg aha uh-huh. what do you and what are you looking for there the lower leg 
the blood circulation is particularly difficult. You know, it's far from the heart, and so circulation in the lower leg is particularly challenging. Blood stagnation signs will show up on the skin there very readily. So you'll see discoloration, purple, blue, green color, varicose veins. And then, of course, you get to see that dry, rough, scaly skin. Right. Dr. Huang Huang talks about that a lot. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he's, he's real big on that, on that lower leg. Yeah, thing. he loves to inspect the lower leg. That's right. Also, Huang Huang showed me, I think it was Huang Huang showed this to me, but it's been a long time, so I can't remember exactly where I learned this, but a thickened heel, thickened skin on the heel is another sign of blood stagnation. Obviously, you can't just automatically say, oh, that's you know 100% blood stagnation. But if the lower leg, you can see discoloration, dry, rough, scaly skin, pigment spots, and the heel is thickened, even to the extent sometimes where it cracks, that's blood stagnation. So those things are the, uh, you know, that's part of the visual in- inspection. And you'll see that on a lot of people. It's, it's quite <laughs> remarkable how many people have those uh, signs and symptoms. And, and I suspect, especially as we get clued into it or clued into it again, it's like, oh, yeah, there it is. And there it is. And, oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah. yeah. Like, for example, I had a patient. This is a very memorable patient because it, it was such a, it was a pretty serious case of a, a patient with very severe PTSD. This is a, a woman in her, I think, maybe early 60s from Central America. And she had been, I think she was from El Salvador. So she'd lived through the, the war there. And her son was killed. Her son had been killed. So after that, she had night terrors. Uh, insomnia, anxiety, depression, fatigue, because obviously not sleeping, eventually developed hypertension. So she was on hypertensive medications, Xanax, I think antidepressants, off and on over the years. And this is, you know, decades long problems she'd had for easily like 20, 30 years. And no one had been able to help her. And I saw her at the Ocom clinic. So oftentimes patients at the Ocom clinic, they've seen multiple practitioners, including other faculty, not just interns, but they've seen other faculty. And I look at the prescriptions that other doctors had given her, and a lot of them were calm shen prescription, right? Like maybe Xuan Zha Ren Tang, or Chai Hu Jia Long Gu Mu Li Tang, or Tian Wang Bu Xin Dan or Tiamma Gotangin for the high blood pressure. People's thinking can be that simplistic sometimes. Oh, you have high blood pressure, just take Tiamma Gotangin, which we, that's a whole nother conversation, why that's not a good approach. But anyway, this patient walked in. The first thing that came to my mind, just looking at her face, was I don't know what's wrong with her, what her complaint is, but whatever it is, she's got a ton of blood stagnation. Because her face is very ashen. Her lips are purple. She's got pigment spots on her face. So I'm like, whatever her problem is, for sure there's a ton of blood stagnation there. So then we got to talking to her, and it took me all of about a minute to decide on the formula. But, you know, it's an intern clinic. So, you know, we spent the next hour letting the interns do their intake and trying to sort out and figure out which formula to use. 
but she had chest discomfort, even some like a little prickly sensation sometimes in the chest, and she'd get cold extremities when she was stressed. So automatically, I'm just thinking If you read Yiling Gai Cuo, right, the Wang Qingren's book where Yutang comes from, I'm not sure how to translate the title, although that book's been translated into English. I think it's something like correcting the errors in the forest of medicine. I think that's how they translate yeah, it. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah. But anyway, Tang and all those Tangs come from Wang Qingren, from that book. If you look at the entry for Tang in that book, I think there's about 16 or 17 different indications, and about half of them are mental-emotional, including night terrors, yelling in your sleep, insomnia, nightmares, that kind of stuff. You know, Wang Qingren identified blood stagnation as a cause, and in particular heart blood stagnation, as a cause of this kind of mental-emotional disorder. So automatically, I just think, and so we did that. We gave her We didn't modify it at all. We didn't add Swan Ren. We didn't add Longu Muli. You know, it's, it's great to take these formulas and use them straight up. Just watch what they do without getting in there and fidgeting. I mean, sometimes we need to. You know, because I teach, I just feel like a little bit of a broken record because I'm always saying the same thing over and over that ultimately it's all just just pattern differentiate and try to understand the patho mechanism. Right? In Chinese, we often talk about being yin, being ji, being yin, being ideology, being ji, patho mechanism. So my teachers talked about being yin, being ji all the time. And I don't hear that or read that too much in English, but it's really imperative to understand pathomechanism. So it's like, okay, if, there, if someone has blood stagnation in the chest, first of all, how could it have gotten there? Well, this person went through some severe emotional trauma. That's going to constrain the chi, at the very least constrain the liver chi, right? And then the liver channel goes to the chest. So that liver chi stagnation, one of the cardinal signs of liver chi stagnation, which also people forget, is chest tightness. People remember subcostal discomfort, flank pain. But chest tightness, chest discomfort is another important symptom of or sign of, of liver chi stagnation. So liver chi stagnation constrains the chi in the chest, impairs heart blood circulation. And then long term, especially with severe emotional stress like that kind of PTSD event, that will make heart blood stagnation then the heart is not nourished because the blood circulation in the heart is impaired. I mean, literally, the circulation in the heart is impaired. It's not metaphysical. It's literally the circulation in the physical heart is impaired. And you can feel that on the pulse, too. And that patient actually had chest pain, little sharp, prickly chest pain. It is the coronary arteries. There's some impaired circulation. It might be in the small vessels, but anyway, there's definitely impaired blood circulation there. So then if the heart blood circulation is impaired, then the shen is not nourished, then you end up with all these different kinds of mental emotional problem. So in that case, all you need to do is deal with this qi and blood stagnation. You don't Swanzaren doesn't address that pathology at all. Neither does Longu Muli. So it's all about proper differentiation, pattern differentiation, and then understanding the pathomechanism and the etiology, if you can, 
And then it's very clear, like that's a Shrefu Zuyutang pattern. There's no need to add any other herb to that formula. And so we gave her Shrefu Zuyutang and immediately within, I think even the first night after she took that, she could sleep. It was just, it was remarkable. And uh, I mean, we dosed it pretty high too. You can't take some small dose of it and expect those kind of results. What do you call a high dose of it? I'm pretty sure we gave her bulk herbs because uh, I'm pretty adamant about that in situations where the it's a kind of a severe case. Yeah, like Chaihu, probably 15, Chishao, 30, Jushu, 15, Gansau, 6 to 9. I can't remember what we gave her. Maybe because she's hypertensive, we gave her 6. Taoren, 15, Honghua, 9, Sungdi, but like a bag a day like that. I want to come back to this in a moment, but I want to veer off to the, to the side here. This, this, this may be getting into troubled waters, but eh, so what? You were talking about how your experience learning in China, there was a big emphasis on really knowing the path of mechanism. What are we actually looking at here? What's going on? You're saying we don't get that so much here in the United States. Well, that's my experience talking with Chinese medicine practitioners here. What's your sense? How come we don't? go into that is it not in our education is it do we think differently what's i think it's just not in the it's not emphasized in school as much in china it's a big thing as everyone knows you need to understand being yin being ji it's they, they emphasize on that but here i met a lot of people even people had been in practice for some time that sure they probably had heard those terms before but they weren't obsessed with it i'm obsessed with that that's, that's something you need to be obsessed with, in my opinion. You need to not just be differentiating patterns. You need, in order to be good at pattern differentiation, you have to understand etiology and pathomechanism. Because that's how you arrive at good pattern differentiation. You have to understand what's the mechanism behind this person's signs and symptoms. So, for example, in the case of blood stagnation, why do you get rough, dry, scaly skin, pigment spots. Well, the blood circulation is impaired. The blood circulation to the skin is particularly difficult because it's all capillary circulation. Capillaries, if the blood circulation systemically is sluggish, then certainly capillary circulation is going to feel it the most. Your aorta, there's still going to be plenty of blood flowing through your aorta, otherwise you're, you're dead. Your capillary blood flow can be you know, somewhat impaired, and you still get around. You might, you might feel a little tired, a little sluggish, but you still survive. So what is it that makes the skin look like that, right? That's pathomechanism. So the blood circulation there is difficult. The skin doesn't get enough blood and nutrients, so it becomes dry and rough. And then how does the pigment accumulate there? Well, when people are exposed to sun, pigment is deposited in the skin. And then when they're not, then the blood comes around and metabolizes those pigments and takes them away. And that's why a tan, especially if you're me, because I'm pretty pale, doesn't last very long, right? You get tan and then it goes away because your body came around and literally the blood came around and metabolized those pigments and took them away. If you have blood stagnation, the pigments are deposited but they never leave. 
So then you end up with pigment spots. That kind of analysis, that's pathomechanism. It's important to do that across the board when you're seeing patients. Right. So it's not so much a thing of going, oh, this patient looks like they fit in this box. It's more, oh, here's what I'm seeing. Oh, yeah, it's this. How do we explain all these signs and symptoms? It's not enough to just say, oh, to memorize. You know, for example, a lot of people have this impression that night sweat is from ene deficiency. I, I think if you ask a lot of people what's the cause of night sweat, they can only come up with that one thing. They think ene deficiency causes night sweat. You know, it's right? one of those things that's the first thing you learn. It's almost like a native tongue, right? Your native tongue is easiest. You can speak other tongues if you learn them, but it's like you, there's a certain default. I mean, when I think of like chi deficiency kinds of things, the first formula that comes to mind is Sijinzatan. Why? It's the first formula I learned for chi deficiency. It's like there's these things, these various aspects about the medicine that we learn, and it's like the first time we hang an idea on it. But there's all these other possibilities. You know, we have to keep looking at all the other possibilities. Right. If you think pathomechanism all the time, analyzing the signs and symptoms, not just memorize a pattern. For example, we could talk about chi deficiency. So chi deficiency pattern. Well, let's just talk about sweating from chi deficiency. That's an interesting thing, right? Chi deficiency people, there's not enough chi to regulate the opening and closing of the pores, right? So Typically, upon exertion, when you're consuming your chi, then you have a little less chi after exertion, then there's less chi to regulate the pores. So the pores slack open and the sweat comes out. That's understanding the pathomechanism of chi deficiency sweating. If all you know is that chi deficiency people sweat upon exertion, but you can't explain why, that's not enough. You need to ask why for all these things. The why is the pathomechanism. So that's in my mind and all my teachers' minds, and I think in most Chinese medicine doctors in China, they understand the importance of not just memorizing patterns, but understanding the mechanism behind all these signs and symptoms. And if you, if you practice that way, if you think that way, then over time, it actually becomes pretty simple. You start to understand. And you can, you can really unravel a lot of difficult cases that other people weren't able to treat because somehow the presentation of the patient didn't match any recognizable pattern that they have memorized. They don't understand how to think about pathomechanism in a sophisticated way. So then they fail in their diagnosis. Their diagnosis comes up short. Like this patient we were just talking about, this PTSD patient, people see insomnia or hypertension, right? The patient had hypertension, so I think someone had given the patient Tiamagotangin, and they see insomnia, so they use Swanzarentong or Tiamambushindan. That's not thinking about pathomechanism. That's just link a particular sign or symptom to a particular pattern. Well, and then you wouldn't know what to do when something like Swanzarentong would maybe make that situation worse. Exactly. Actually, Swanzarantan can make this patient worse. I mean, Swanzarantan, at least it has Chuan Shong. So that's, you know, maybe not the worst thing you could do for the patient. But like Tianwan Bushindan, for example, you give that patient Tianwan Bushindan, you'll definitely make them worse. 
all those cold, sticky herbs, it's going to gum up her blood circulation even more. And Tiama Gotangin, yeah, people love that for hypertension, but not all hypertension is liver yang rising, you know. Some of it is, but a lot of hypertension actually is due to blood stagnation. After she took the Shrefa Jutang, her blood pressure actually started to come down. Her blood pressure came down, she came off some of those blood pressure meds and some of the psych meds, and yeah, she was sleeping through the night. I mean, still, she had some issues, but uh, she was much, much better. Even after, and I, I don't think we just gave her Shri Futsuyutang. That was the first formula. And then over time, the formulas changed a little bit. But definitely blood stagnation was part of her treatment, I think, for almost the entire time. Because one of the things about blood stagnation is very stubborn stuff. It often takes a long time to address it. But anyway... She was taking those blood stagnation herbs for a long time. And her complexion improved, too. She was really happy about that. Yeah, it's a beauty formula. Yeah. It is a beauty formula. Like Her skin started, it was more moist and had more shine. And the pigment spots start to lighten a little bit. She looked less ashen and more like rosy-cheeked, like that. So she was very happy. Not only she felt better, but she looked better. So that was a very, a very nice case. It's it's a very instructive case. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So I think most of us are familiar with that. There's a a deep, deep connection between the Shen and the blood these days. I I don't know what your practice looks like, but I would say at least a third and at certain points up to half or so of my patients are in some kind of, you know, Xanax or Lexapro is the big one over here in, in the Midwest, Paxil, you know, all these, these different kinds of mood meds. What's your experience with these kinds of psychoemotive issues where people have been given these medications that really in many ways keep them away from their emotions? How do you see that playing in with blood stasis? It would be wrong to say that all those people have blood stagnation. I mean, maybe they do to some extent or not. It would be wrong to say that all those people's mental emotional problems, you could just simply chalk up to blood stagnation. I think it's often at least part of the pattern. It may not be the only thing. I mean, that's the other thing to remember is that people's problems are often, there's many things going on. Blood stagnation is part of it, but there can be underlying deficiencies and there's heat. There can be cold, right? There's all different things going on, and you sort of have to peel the layers. But blood stagnation is often one of those layers. It's often one of the overlooked layers. I would say that a lot of those people, I do end up treating them for blood stagnation. Again, not because I think that blood stagnation is their only problem, but they they do have that. They those people often have, you know, they have emotional problems, so they have Qi stagnation. Qi stagnation leads to blood stagnation. And and uh, so ultimately, you do end up putting in some herbs for blood stagnation. Put some Dansen in there, or you know you can use Shui uh, Fuzhu Tang. Of course, you need to figure out where the blood stagnation is and go after it. For example, if you read Sang Han Lun, Di Dang Tang. Di Dang Tang is Fa Kuang, right? Kuang Craziness. is... Uh, Craziness, yeah. right? Mania, craziness. Mm-hmm. So, di dang tang is blood stagnation in the lower abdomen, right? The lower burner. Da huang tao ren, right? For the lower burner blood stagnation. It's not just heart blood stagnation that can make people 
have some mental emotional problems. It could be blood stagnation anywhere. So you you have to try to figure out where their blood stagnation is. You can palpate the abdomen. You could of course try to feel it on the pulse or look on the tongue or facial diagnosis, all those things. You just go back to Bianzang, you know, and uh, back to basics in some ways. Back to it's really back to basics. That's I think for me one of the key mistakes I see students make is they focus on chief complaint. That, for me, is a big mistake. Chief complaint is only important in that, okay, that's what the patient came in to see you for. That's what they want you to fix. You know, you're working for them. They're, they hired you, so you should fix the thing that they want to have fixed. But how you fix it, that's, that's your job, right? If you decide, okay, this patient has, we can go back to this PTSD patient, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, they, they, they have PTSD, they want to sleep through the night, they don't want to have night terrors anymore, so that you're obliged to treat that. How you do it, like if you decide you need to treat that person's, say, say you believe their problem is because of their digestion. They don't want you to treat their digestion, but just say it's their digestion causing the problem. Well, then you explain to the patient, from a Chinese medicine perspective, I believe your problem is coming from the digestion or whatever it is. And in order to get at this problem, we need to work on this thing. I will often use a kind of a metaphor to try to get them to understand that. So for example, I have certain patients, they come in and they, they you know, I ask them about their sleep. They're like, well, you know, I'm up several times a night. You get a little deeper into it. Well, they sleep kind of lightly and their spouse snores like a freight train. Oh, you know, maybe if the spouse snored less, you would sleep better. And in some cases, that's actually the solution. Yeah. Yeah, it can be. But students I see, I find, and again, you know, I, I guess because I'm teaching, I maybe my impression of Chinese medicine in the West I, it's not even fair to say maybe it's it must be skewed because I'm just around students all the time, right? So they're 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 newbies, right? They tend to see chief complaint and then they they try to match the chief complaint to some pattern. But it's important, I think, to step back and re- remember the chief complaint is not more important than any other sign or symptom. Yeah, it's the thing that the patient wants you to treat, but it doesn't carry any more weight in your diagnosis than any other sign or symptom. So step back and look at the big picture. Try to figure out, you know, what is this person's overall pattern? And, you know, you got to focus on on that. So, you know, the bowel movement and the urination, temperature, sweat, those things are as important to understand as their you know, their chief complaint. All those things carry equal weight. Well, it helps us to understand their chief complaint. That's exactly right. So you, that's what gets you to the diagnosis. Not like, oh, they have hypertension, therefore that must be liver yang rising. The hypertension is just one sign, right, that you can use. So you, you need to look at all those different things. Again, just from what we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, blood stagnation, I feel... It's not something that I'm obsessed with. I think it's just something that other people overlook, and therefore it makes me look like I'm obsessed <laughs> because I can identify it very easily, and I just see it in a lot of people. That doesn't mean that I'm obsessed with it. It just means 
I'm good at identifying it and maybe other people are not. So, I mean, we talked about pigment on the skin, you know, what's the skin looks like, the dryness, the luster. Of course, we have tongue and pulse, that kind of thing. But I mean, have you got any other kinds of uh, secret blood stagnation signs or, or things that maybe we'd over, some people might overlook that you just, you just know how to tune into. It's like, oh yeah, that's blood stasis. None of this stuff is secret. I think it's just stuff that maybe people haven't learned or they forgot or something. But well, like I said, the first thing is the visual inspection because often that will give it away. But then the pulse, but pulse diagnosis is of course a little trickier. But I think ultimately when you're thinking about pulse, and actually everything in Chinese medicine, even everything in the universe, we can boil down to yin yang. Everything boils down to yin yang. And same with the pulse. So when you think about the pulse, if the pulse is yin, and what is the yin pulse? Well, deep is yin versus floating is yang. Thin pulse is yin. Wide pulse is yang. Rapid pulse is yang. Slow pulse is yin. Like that. We just think about the pulse, just break it down to yin yang like that. And if you think about it, any, any of us can do that, anyone who's studied Chinese medicine. It's super simple, right? So then you think about, okay, if you have a yin pulse, well, then there's yin phenomena in the body. Mm-hmm. And if you have a yang pulse, there's some yang phenomena occurring in the body, right? Okay, then what is blood stagnation? Well, blood belongs to yin. Blood stagnation is dead blood. So that must be even more yin than regular blood. Super yin. Yeah. Blood stagnation is is yin pathogen. Just like phlegm damp is also yin pathogen, right? Blood stagnation is yin pathogen. So it makes the pulse yin. It makes the pulse deep. It makes the pulse thin. But blood stagnation is an excess. Excess is yang. Deficiency is yin. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So blood stagnation pulse is often thin and deep but forceful because it's yang. The main thing to differentiate excess and deficiency on the pulse is strength. That's the main thing. You can have a thin pulse. Thin pulse and wide pulse do not represent excess and deficiency. I think people forget that. They think, oh, thin, that must be more on the deficiency side. Wide, that must be more on the excess side. But remember, deficiency pulse, the actual deficiency pulse is floating and wide. Mm-hmm. You could even have a deep, thin, tight pulse. Yeah, deep, thin, and forceful. Deep, thin, tight pulse is typically like excess cold. So deep, thin, with a little bit of force in it is typical blood stagnation pulse. So for example, the left guan, because liver stores the blood, we often can feel blood stagnation in the left guan. Right, liver blood stagnation will typically show up as a deep, thin, but forceful pulse. Remember, when there's stagnation, you often get heat from constraint. That's another thing I'm. It's probably fair to say that I'm obsessed with is constrained heat. Constrained heat, heat secondary to constraint. Yeah, that's a big deal, and I think most people don't really understand that very well. That, and they don't understand how to treat it very well because it's different. Treating heat from constraint is different than treating some other types of heat. Can you give us an example of that one? It's a great example. And I think it's something that we run into on a regular basis. It's why Xiaowei Xiaosan is prescribed by so many practitioners. 
Well, heat from constraint, there's a saying in Chinese you say, Huo yu fa zi. means fire constrained, then disperse it. So constrained heat, you need to disperse. You don't use cold, bitter, downward draining. Cold and bitter things, they have an inward movement. They cause constraint, actually. They tend to actually cause contraction in the body. So huoyufadza means fa. Fa is the yang treatment method. Acrid, warm herbs, yang-type herbs to disperse constraint. When you disperse the constraint, then the heat naturally goes away. Now, the reason jiawei shayosan has jutsu in it is you want to mop. There's heat there, so you need to mop up the heat. It's not like there's no heat, so you don't, you can't put any. You can only use warm dispersing herbs. No, you use moving herbs on the acrid side. Some of them can be warm. That's fine. They're generally not hot herbs, but sometimes they are. But then you put a little bit of some cold herbs in there that mop up the heat because you do need to mop up the heat. But it's not a predominance of cold herbs when there's constrained heat. Otherwise, you will get rid of the heat because you're using cold herbs. The heat will go away. But you're going to make more stagnation, and then ultimately there will be more heat. When the person stops taking the medication, then the heat is going to come back with a vengeance, and you'll make more stagnation. You're actually going to you, – you can actually plant the seed of someone's tumor doing that. You know, if Chinese medicine can dissolve tumors – I've seen it. You can dissolve people's tumors. You don't think you can make people's tumors? Oh, yeah, you can. You absolutely can. You may not realize it. The patient may not realize it because it happens 10, 20, 30 years later. But you can very easily plant the seed of someone's malignant tumor by wrong treatment. The, the, the patient will never come back and say, oh, Greg gave me this you know, tumor. They'll never connect those two things together. And most doctors also won't connect it. And you can't 100% connect those things anyway, right? There's too many variables. You can't say, oh, yeah, I, this mistaken formula caused this person's tumor. But you absolutely could. So that's, that's another huge topic, heat from constraint and how to treat that. But Well, and also it, this gets into the thing of how we know that we're doing no harm. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a tricky one. It is a tricky one because people are looking for help. We're looking to help with the best that we know. You know, when I look back at some of the stuff I did early on in my practice, it's far from ideal. Yeah, I, I do not envy <laughs> some of the patients that I treated when I was, uh, you know, a younger practitioner. Uh, definitely made a lot of mistakes. I still make mistakes, but just less and less. The mistakes are less less severe now. Yeah, mistakes are inevitable. I emphasize this to my students all the time. It's like, if you think you're good, think that you're right most of the time, you need to take a step back and, and have a look at yourself because it's very easy to be wrong. It's actually very difficult to be right. Di right diagnosis is really difficult. To be wrong is super easy. The odds are, are completely stacked against you being right. So always be second-guessing yourself. Always realize you can do better. You, even you get good results with a patient, you almost sure could have done better. How long have you been practicing now? How long have you been at this? 20 years. Yeah, okay. A little over 20 years. And then, you know, in China, I saw a lot of patients. That's the, that's the main thing is this, I got to see a 
because I was licensed in China and I practiced there as well as followed my teachers. So I saw thousands of patients. And then I followed a lot of good teachers. So they, I didn't make any of this up, you know. I don't take credit for any, anything that I know or do in Chinese medicine. I didn't make any of it up. I just learned what other people do and copied them. Well, this is, this is how we learn, right? And then at some point, something comes through that, that probably is ours. Maybe, but... But it's, it's a process of refinement. Yeah. I don't really consider that I made anything up. I just, I just you know, even like the formulas, I, I tend to not make up my own formulas. I tend to use old formulas. I, and I mean, I, I kind of default towards the Jing Fang approach, the classical formula approach, Zhang Zhongjing, because I, I find that super effective. But I'm not dogmatic at all, or you know, I'm 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 kind of eclectic. So I'll use Wang Qingren's formulas, and I'll use Zhang Jiebin's formulas, and I'll use yeah modern stuff, Ding Ganren, Ye Tianshi, all that stuff. I'd use anything. Yan Dexin. I learned a bunch of stuff reading Yan Dexin's book. Right, like I learned how to use bugs, a lot of bugs actually by reading about his stuff like how do you how do you swage bugs is a big thing for blood stasis yeah that's a huge one all right in a moment i want to come back and talk to you about clinical mistakes because there's some gold to mine in that and, and i just have some personal questions so we're going to come back to that but first oh yeah well there's a saying in chinese means literally means blood and flesh, blood and meat. That means animal products. Yo qing means has an affinity. Literally, blood and flesh has an affinity. So animal products have an affinity for the body. Animal products have an affinity for the human body because it's closer to us than plant and mineral. Mm -hmm. So that's why we eat meat to tonify blood. That's one of the reasons I would say but from an herbal perspective, what, what does that mean? It means that the animal products, they're e first of all, they're easily assimilated by the body. That's the first thing. And the second thing is they go deep into the body. They go into the deep space where those plant and mineral substances can't easily get. Ye Tianshi talked about this a fair amount, about the luo mai, right? He has a saying, jiu bing ru luo. Jiu bing ru luo means all disease goes to the luo mai. The luo mai being the small vessels. And when we're talking about blood circulation and blood stagnation, and blood stagnation tending to be a chronic problem, a, a jiu bing, an old disease, it ends up in the luo mai. Blood stagnation ends up going and settling in the law. That's one of the reasons that it's so stubborn. It's in the law. It's these tiny little vessels. Yeah. And sometimes there's phlegm in there as well. That makes it even more interesting. Absolutely, because blood stagnation and phlegm, there's another saying. We say, Tan yu tong yuan. Tan is phlegm. Yu, blood stagnation. Tong yuan means same origin, which just means not that. Not necessarily that they come from the same place, but that they're they're related to each other. They transform into each other. When there's blood stagnation, there's almost always stagnant fluids. And when the fluids stagnate, there's almost always stagnant blood. So because of that, 
blood stagnation becomes really stubborn problem, very hard to get rid of, even to the point where you're not going to be able to get rid of it in all patients. That's why people are mortal. If, if, you know, if Chinese medicine could cure all these things, right, get rid of all blood stagnation, you could tonify the kidney endlessly, then you're immortal. But clearly, that's not happening, or at least I haven't met any immortals yet so that I know of. So you can't get rid of all the blood stagnation, but you can get rid of some of it. You can extend people's life by getting rid of their blood stagnation, by tonifying their kidney and all that. Mm-hmm. And you can help with their PTSD. Yeah, improve their quality of life. And, it, and literally, you can extend longevity by proper Chinese medicine treatment. That's sure. There's a friend I have some conversations with in Taiwan, and, and he's into various Taoist practices and martial arts. And, and, and we've had some discussions around what it means to be immortal from the Chinese philosophical and Taoist perspectives and all that. He has a really interesting take. His take is not that you live forever. His take is that you completely and fully live your allotted days. And if we can do things that help people to live their fully allotted days, that's an aspect of of being immortal, right? I mean, if, if they're not able to completely live their full days, like this woman with PTSD, Right, you take some of that away, they they get to live more fully. I suspect this is why there are some herbs, and you know, there you eat a bunch of this, you become immortal. It's it's not that you live forever; it's that you live more fully and better what you have. Yeah, well, we're definitely capable of helping people with that. Chinese medicine's well suited. It's amazing how how good it is at accomplishing that. So let's finish up with the bugs here, and then I want to get into mistakes. So anyway, the bugs go to the luo mai. That's the thing. They, it's that shui ru you qing idea that they have an affinity for the body. They go deep into the body. They go to the luo mai. So they're used typically as guiding herbs. You don't necessarily need huge doses of them. People are scared to use those things because when you read about them in the book, they're usually, they xue, they break the blood. And they, it makes it sound like they're the strongest blood-moving herbs out there, and they're dangerous. They're going to make you bleed. It's like taking warfarin or something like that. It's absolutely not the case. They're not actually stronger than other herbs. They just go deeper and work on that old, stubborn blood stagnation. Actually, San Lung Ezu, as an example, I would say are more damaging to the blood, stronger to move the blood than a lot of the bugs, that lot more than leech, more than tubia chong, more than di long, which those are kind of the big, well, meng chong, of course, which is hard to get anyway. But uh, I think most people are kind of scared to use sui zhi, right? the leech, and tubia chong, the, the cockroach. Probably because they're 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 stinky and they're kind of gross, but patients freak out when they see bugs in their formula. Yeah, they they do, but you can explain to them. And I mean, my patients they're fine with it. Most of them, I, I rarely had anybody object to that. Um, I mean, I have had some, but mostly not. But anyway, again, it's not that they're so strong. It's just that they go to the luo mai and they get at the old blood stagnation. Now you don't even need to dose them high. You you use them as guiding herbs to help direct the formula and bring the other parts of the formula to that space in the body where that old blood stagnation is hanging out. 
And so you use them that way. Like Da Huang Zi Wan is a perfect example of that, which is a formula most people don't know of. Da Huang Zi Wan. Yeah, da Huang Zi Wan is from Jingwei Yao Lue. And it's from, interestingly, actually very interestingly, is from the Shulao chapter of Jingwei Yao Lue. Shulao is the deficiency taxation, right? It's extreme deficiency. And in fact, if you read the line for Da Huang Zi Wan, it's Shu Lao, Ji Lao. Ji Lao means extreme taxation. And then it gives a bunch of signs and symptoms for that, which include like Jia Cuo, the rough scaly skin, and uh, dark circles around the eyes is one of the symptoms. But anyway, it's extreme deficiency taxation, where this person overdid it, made their body extremely weak, and now they have this old blood stagnation. And when you look at the formula, it's got, of course, Da Huang, because it's called Da Huang Zi Cong Wan. Zi Cong is Chu Bie Chong. It's got Sui Zhu, the leech. Tao Ren. It's, it's like a, it looks like a really heavy blood stagnation formula. Like you, You'd be scared to give that to people if you're, if you're scared of blood stagnation herbs to begin with, which I think a lot of people are. So when you look at that formula, you're like, oh my God, that's that formula is so strong. Where are you going to find a place to use it? And then the place to use it is in some person who's incredibly weak and debilitated, deficient. At first glance, it's it doesn't make a lot of sense. But then when you think about it, what's happened there is this patient, for whatever reason, has developed old and very stubborn blood stagnation throughout their body that's impairing, obviously, circulation of normal, healthy qi, blood, and body fluids. And then all the tissues become malnourished. And they can't recover from this situation because their circulation is so poor that their organ function and all their tissue function just starts to decline. And so that kind of patient, you can't tonify them because they, they can't accept tonification. Right. In fact, if you give them tonics, you'll make it worse. You'll increase the stagnation, right? Yeah, you'll absolutely make it worse. So then the, the formula is Da Huan Zi Wan, which very notably important to note is it's a wine. It's a pill. It's a honey pill. So those herbs are ground into powder, mixed with honey, and taken at a fairly light dose the honey moderates the harsh nature of the herbs and it's taken at a small dose. So you just little by little whittle away at that old blood stagnation and then you can bring the new blood to the tissues and then the, the tissue organ function starts to recover. And then at a certain point, when once you've resolved some of that stubborn stagnation, you could start to add some tonic herbs to a, a patient like that. But that's really instructive. You know, that, that shows you that those herbs, they're not damaging the body unless you use them inappropriately, of course. Like if someone has a lot of blood stagnation, you might think, and they're really debilitated like that, you might think, oh, moving the blood more is going to damage the blood more, damage the body more. But those people, there's, you can't do anything until you get their blood moving. Right. So we're really back here to something we talked about earlier in the show really main point of yours, which is understand the pathomechanism. When you understand what you're looking at, it makes it a lot easier to go, oh yeah, this formula here, and here's why it works. Yeah, 
absolutely pathomechanism is the, is the key in my mind to being a good clinician. Because in order to be a good diagnostician, you have to understand pathomechanism. You have to analyze. You, for example, you could just memorize all the signs and symptoms associated with da huan zi song wan. And then when you, you see all that stuff, you're like, oh, just apply da huan zi song wan. But it's much better to not only have that memorized, but know why those things appear. Because you could take someone with shu lao that didn't match that pattern, give them da huang's si zi song wan, right. and kill them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, you, can, you can definitely shave time off people's life. If you can add days, you can very easily shave some off. I think that's really important to remember. You know, so often we think, well, we didn't really help them, but we, pro but we, we probably didn't hurt them. And, and that's, I think that's mistaken. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, you don't know. You may have only shaved an hour off that person's life. Well, the hour they wasted with you. Right. <laughs> they wasted in the I want to come back to mistakes for a moment. Because anyone that's been in practice for 20 years, um, we've made a lot of mistakes. I heard it the first week of school when I first went to acupuncture school. There were some teachers that came in and they told us about cases that, that they did that totally went off the rails. Right? I think all of our teachers, they, we, we hear these great stories. I thought it was this. I gave them that. This thing happened. Wheels came off the bus. I realized it wasn't cheat efficiency. It was blood stagnation. Give them this other formula. You know, they get better. And, and we love these stories, right? It's like, that's so cool. We love these stories. But here's the thing. When it's us who's in the middle of treating somebody, and we think we know what we're doing, and we get very unexpected and, you know, frankly, bad results, it really is one of those moments where it's like, oh, great. I get to learn something now, but rarely do we go to, oh, cool, I get to learn something. It's more like, oh, shit, now what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially a serious case. Any advice for us on when we come up to that moment of, oh, wrong, how do you sort of keep it together, mind, thought, emotions, take all this and, and move it into something that can be helpful for the patient and helpful for you to learn something? Yeah, well, I think the first thing to remember is that you're always going to make mistakes. Medicine is really complicated, and so it's par for the course. So you need to cut yourself some slack, first of all. I saw my teachers, some teachers with 50 years experience, and 50 years experience in China is not like 50 years here. 50 years experience there would be like a thousand years here. I mean, it, some of these doctors see 100 patients a day, five, six days a week, and they hardly ever take holidays. So they're just, they see hundreds of thousands of patients in their career. If those doctors make mistakes, and they definitely do, I've seen it, then it's perfectly normal that <laughs> us lesser practitioners will make mistakes. So first of all, don't beat yourself up too much about it. But hold yourself to a high standard. I hold myself to a really high standard. So I'm constantly thinking, how can I do better? And even like I said, when, I, when results are, are quote-unquote good, I still believe that I could have done better. Maybe I'm not capable of doing better, but there is something better. Sure, just 
whether or not you can achieve that. But anyway, when you actually make an obvious error and people are getting worse, well, then you just you need to step back. First of all, you need to be you need to admit it. Like you, I see this a lot where people, and it's not just Chinese medicine practitioners. It's in this in the alternative medicine fields. I would say I don't know that MDs are saying this, but a lot of alternative medicine practitioners chalk up those kinds of things to healing crisis. And there is such a thing as a healing crisis, but not every patient uh, having adverse symptoms is a healing crisis. How do you differentiate a healing crisis from bad treatment? That's a really important question. So a healing crisis, my theory about what a healing crisis is, I think it's first important to understand what that is, is that oftentimes patients have, they have a lot of excesses in their body phlegm, blood stagnation, heat, whatever. And when you start to move those things around, dislodge them, and you need to dislodge those things and purge them from the body. Right, you got to metabolize it out. You have to first dislodge it and then get it to leave your body. But in that process, those things will circulate around the body and make people sick. From a Western perspective, there's a lot of metabolic waste toxins. For example, when people have blood stagnation, and since we're talking about it, when the blood stagnates, the blood is at once the delivery people bringing oxygen, nutrients, fluids, and all that to the tissues. It's also the garbage people taking away all the metabolic waste. So it delivers the good stuff, it takes away all the junk. If the blood stagnates, then all that junk starts to collect there. It's like the garbage man doesn't come around. So you have all this garbage collecting in your tissues. That's the stuff that's making you sick, aside from the fact that not enough oxygen and nutrients are getting to your tissues, so they're starved. But there's also all this waste buildup that's making things go haywire as well. So when you dislodge that stuff, it starts to circulate around the body. And if it doesn't leave quickly enough, or there's just a large amount of it, you'll have some symptoms from that. That's a healing crisis. That's what I think healing crisis is. You can minimize healing crises by promoting the the rapid elimination of those waste toxins. When you go to do those kinds of things, to move those, dislodge and move those things around, you got to be sure to open the windows and doors. It's like when you're cleaning your house, you have, say, some carpet in your house, right? Or a rug, a rug in your house that's, you know, gets a lot of dirt and stuff accumulated. You don't pick the rug up and start beating it until all the windows and doors are open. If you beat the rug in the house with the windows and doors shut, now the the dust is just stirring around. It's going to settle somewhere else. Right. So you want to make sure your patients are pooping before you start moving too much blood. Yeah. Yeah, You got to make sure all that stuff's coming out. You know, like I love to use Da Chai Hutang. For that exact reason. Da Chai Utang takes care of blood stagnation. It's got Da Huang and Chi in it. You can use Chi You could use Bai Shao, but I often will use Chi right? Because you're the blood stagnation guy. Yeah, and then Chai Hu Huang Qin promote the liver detoxification pathways, right? So you're, you're use Da Chai Utang to help clean the body is, is pretty amazing. But anyway, healing crisis you can minimize by promoting rapid elimination of those waste toxins. So 
a lot of people though they they do wrong treatment and because for whatever reason maybe they're they're scared to admit that they make mistakes or they just think that they can't make mistakes they think they're really great at you know being a clinician or they don't want to tell admit it to the patient that they made a mistake they just chalk those things up to healing crisis healing crisis after the healing crisis, especially if you're good at eliminating those toxins from the body, the patient should feel better. That's one way you know. They might feel amazing, but they might just feel a little bit better because you know, they might have a lot of problem going on. You just eliminated one little layer of it, but there should be some improvement after that. The tongue, the pulse, the symptoms, the patient should feel a little better. If they feel worse, Okay, it's probably wrong treatment. And anyway, back to this thing about right diagnosis and wrong diagnosis, the odds are completely against you being right. So the odds of you, of it being a healing crisis versus wrong treatment, the odds are highly in favor of it being wrong treatment. So that's, I think, really important to keep that in mind that it's easy to be wrong, but it's, it's okay. Don't beat yourself up about it. And you can tell the patient too. I, I mean, I'm super honest with my patients, and I think they appreciate it. I'm just like, because a lot of patients, especially around here in Portland, they know about healing crisis. They heard it before. They've been to other doctors, and they had they had symptom aggravation, and the doctor's like, oh, that's a healing crisis. And then the patient was thinking, well, I don't know, because I don't feel better. So they know that, they actually know the doctor is being dishonest, or if not dishonest, then the doctor's, it's not a good doctor because they don't realize it. So I'm just perfectly honest. I'm like, so that formula made you worse? And that definitely happens to me. I I make people worse all the time. I mean, the reason I'm asking the question, I think because all of us do. Of course. You know, at some point, all of us do. And to be able to look at it and go, oh, that made you worse. We're getting back to pathomechanism here. Made them worse in what way can be a really helpful question. Oh, it went like that. Oh. Well, we know not to do that, and that actually tells me something else. That helps you hone in on the proper diagnosis. It's an important thing to analyze carefully because it'll help you get closer to the right diagnosis if you, if you analyze it properly. You know, if you're honest with a patient, you say, look, let's see, you know, what are the signs and symptoms you had from these herbs? How did it go wrong? Or maybe it was a healing crisis. You analyze that with the patient, then you're like, okay, yeah, that was a healing crisis. It looks like just keep going with this formula and I think you'll feel better. Or no, that's not a healing crisis. That formula, definitely there's something wrong with it. You know, stop taking it now and come in as soon as you can and we'll, we'll you know, reassess and change the formula. Patients really appreciate that. So I'm super honest with patients. If I make a mistake, I'll just be like, that was a mistake. You know, it's, this is medicine's hard stuff. You just be honest with patients. They appreciate it. And especially when you're able to say it's wrong and here's the reason why it's wrong. And here's what we're going to do instead. That's the key is like to analyze, okay, what does that tell me? If I gave this person, let's say that Shulao patient, the deficiency taxation patient, if I decide, oh, that person's super weak, so their weakness and their taxation, that must be just due to qi deficiency. And I tonify them and they get worse. And it's like, okay, well, maybe, maybe there is underlying deficiency there. 
but there's something else there. There's got to be something else there. Otherwise, my treatment would have worked. So clearly, you need to you need to step back and reanalyze it, especially if your treatment isn't all over the place. And this is another thing we could talk about is when you're not super clear, sometimes you want to do something very unidirectional. You don't want a formula that's all over the place. You do a little of this and a little of that and a little of the other thing. Then when the patient comes back the next time, if it worked, you don't really know why it worked. And if it didn't work, you don't know why it didn't work. So you're just back to square one. If you do something simple, straightforward, unidirectional, then when the patient comes back, you can make sense of their response to it. You've got some data points to work with. Yeah, you actually have yeah, you can actually start making progress that way as opposed to just starting over again. So analyzing those mistakes is is a huge uh, important thing. And the first thing though, you got to be able, be willing to admit it and not just chalk up everything to a healing crisis and be a little kind with yourself in the process. Yeah, you cut yourself some slack, don't beat yourself up cuz everyone's making mistakes, you know. Those 70-year-old doctors, they're making mistakes. So it's okay, you know, just uh, learn from them. Learn from them, yeah. Well, great. Yeah, that's the key. Learn from them. 